The other week, our teens, uh, many of them anyway, watched a movie entitled The Princess Bride. And I am going to tell a little story from there, except I'm going to have you help me with it. Um, it was interesting, the week before it was Juliana's birthday, and she wanted us to watch this movie. It got a little bit too late, so we couldn't. But she said, we're going to watch it differently, and we're just going to quote this movie as much as we can. Now, <laughs> this sounds really strange to some of you, but it, it, it's a very weird, strange, but adorable movie in many respects. And I'm just going to tell you a scene. And when I do this, I'm going to have you, if you happen to know the line, I want you to just share the line with us, okay? I'm not going to point anybody out. You're just going to help me out with it, all right? Now, so that you are aware, um, Rusty who is only four years old, as we were watching him one day and his mom and dad were heading out to a date, he waved to them and said, have fun storming the castle. So if he can remember some of those lines, all right, you got the picture. So help me tell the story. So here's the man in black in Miracle Max's house on a table. And you know what? Hang on. No, 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 no. Let me sum up. As the man in black is actually laying in the pit of despair, and Prince Humperdinck, angry that he may be losing his true love to this man, who did not love him back, he rushed down into the pit of despair, threw the machine to the highest level, and sucked 50 years out of his life. Not to 50. There we go. Thank you. You're catching on. Two of his friends, a Spaniard and a giant, discovered him down there and took him to Miracle Max's house. I am summing up. <clears throat> and there he lay on Miracle Max's table. And as Miracle Max was prodding him, he concluded he's not completely dead. He's only mostly dead. Thank you. He asks... He, he puts air in, Miracle Max blow, puts air into uh, the man in black's lungs and presses down on him. And while he's pressing, he said, what's worth living for? And he says, true love. Thank you. Miracle Max lies and quotes him as saying Blade. to blathe, which means <laughs> to bluff. Okay. His wife suddenly enters the room accusing him of lying and Miracle Max dances around the room with his hands next to his ears saying, I'm not listening. Thank you. You are so good at this. The Spaniard explains the significance of bringing the man in black back to life because in doing so, the man in black would interrupt Prince Humperdinck's wedding and Miracle Max says, so he'll be embarrassed on his wedding day? And the Spaniard says, humiliations galore. All right. As all were leaving, Miracle Max and his wife wave goodbye saying... Thank you. You guys did great. Now, last week, <laughs> do you think it will work? It'll take a miracle, yeah. Last week, we talked about reconciliation. And one of the principles we talked about was the importance of stepping into someone else's shoes. If you fail to do this, 
you will never be able to discover reconciliation. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, we learned at the very end of Mark 9, we're going to be reading Mark 10, so turn there. But at the end of Mark 9, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. He then moves on to talking about divorce. So last week, I spoke generally about reconciliation. This week, I'm going to be talking about divorce. How do we avoid it? We're going to talk about the severity. We're going to talk about what Jesus says here, and then I can conclude with some insights I want to be able to share with you. And we will discover in what what I'm going to be sharing with you that it is absolutely important to step into your spouse's shoes and listen. Because our problem is when we're arguing, we go around saying this, I'm not listening. And the truth is, we need to listen. Okay? Mark, chapter 10, starting with verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as, he was, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him, underline that word, if you will, circle it, whatever, highlight it, tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Hmm. What did Moses command you? He replied, They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And here's what Jesus replies. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Notice, Jesus doesn't say them, he says you. As if, even in the present, your hearts are still hard. Jesus knew he was asking them a question to test them. It's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female for this reason. And this is a quote from Genesis 2.25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. James says, be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Arguments, however, between husband and wives turn this around so that we're quick to become angry, right? Slow, excuse me, quick to speak, but slow to listen. As a result, the latest statistics show that the divorce rate in the church has risen to match the world's. This is horrible. And I am, I, I am wanting us to truly see through Jesus' eyes and then leave you with some pointers. Okay, so I shouldn't divorce, so how do I keep from doing this? Jesus has a teaching moment here. 
He is sitting down. He is talking, excuse me, with the crowd. And the Pharisees come along and they want to test him. Now, the testing comes in the form of a question. They want to know what his view on divorce is. Now, there are two reasons why they're doing this. Number one, there is at the time, or just before Jesus, there were two men, one by the name of Hillel, not Hillel, by the way, Hillel, and another by the name of Shammai. Hillel was viewed as more liberal in his understanding of the word, and Shammai more conservative. The argument of divorce went back to Deuteronomy 24, where Jesus actually, excuse me, where Moses actually speaks about a certificate of divorce, should they get divorced, in which Jesus replies, he did this because of the hardness of your hearts. And the question then is that the Pharisees are wondering, is Hillel right or is Shammai right? Hillel said that according to Deuteronomy 24, that the husband could put away his wife for any reason, including burning the toast. The NIV says if he finds anything indecent in her. Shammai says that that thing that's indecent in her would be only adultery. And so therefore, divorce was only permitted because of adultery. The argument against that, however, is adulterers were stoned. They weren't just divorced. And so if Jesus had to choose which was right, he would more than likely lean in the direction of Hillel and disagree with Shammai as far as the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 goes. Deuteronomy 24, that I'm not going to get into it, was actually put there to help protect the woman from being treated like property. And so they wanted to know, so whose side are you leaning on? And Jesus would have disagreed with Shammai's interpretation. However, Jesus turns the tables on them and explains, but you know, right? Shammai is correct when you go all the way back to the beginning. And from there, God said, no, no, I hate divorce. And there's only one permissible reason. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But that is the theological landscape, the background, if you will, of this question. So Jesus, where do you stand on divorce? They wanted Jesus to come out and say something radical so they could nail him. But here's the second reason. If you notice where Jesus is teaching, he is teaching in a region on the other side of the Jordan called Perea, and King Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of that region and the region of Galilee, though not Judea. That was Pilate's jurisdiction. Jesus was now teaching in King Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. The significance of this is that Herod, King Herod, had married Herodias, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist had preached and said, according to the word of God, what you are doing is sin. You cannot divorce and marry your brother's wife. You cannot do this. And so the Pharisees are drawing Jesus out so that he will make a statement that would align himself with John the Baptist 
and Herod would do their dirty work and put Jesus to death. So do you see this? They're setting him up. And so Jesus doesn't go there. He wants to get to the heart of the issue. And he said, you know what? The reason why God even had Moses say what he did was because your hearts were so hard. You could not hear and obey. Do not divorce. You could not hear that. So he allowed you to do this because of the hardness of your hearts. And he is still saying that your hearts are still hard. You, you, the word I'm about to give you is, is beyond you because you are so filled with the world's thinking and the hardness of your heart has so led you astray. So Jesus, in essence, says, what I'm about to tell you is going to be a hard pill to swallow. But it was not like this. What Moses told you about this certificate of divorce for anything indecent, it wasn't like this from the beginning. God, in the beginning of creation, not the beginning of creation of man and woman, but if you were to look around you, you see creation. When all of this began, when all of this began at the very beginning of when God created, not 14 billion years ago or when some say when, when God created the, the earth four and a half billion years ago, but no, when God created in six literal days, in that time frame, he created man and he made them male and female. And it, you see, it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother. He will come out from under their authority and marry a woman. And he doesn't come out from under their authority before then. So he's under their authority, and now he establishes his own. And Jesus makes this point. He said, what God has joined together, what God has made one, don't let man separate. Now, Jesus had earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that Mark doesn't talk about, said it again, but in a slightly different way. And if you have your Bibles open, turn to Matthew 5.31. He, he repeats this in a slightly different way, but saying the same thing in Matthew 19, verse 9. But I'm going to read to you these two verses in Matthew 5.31 and 32. He is quoting from the Old Testament. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I said, don't be angry with your brother. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't look upon a woman to lust after her. You've heard it said, and here he says here, he says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word there is porneia, it means having sex with a prostitute or outside of marriage, you know, before, before marriage, um, or, or, or I'm sorry, either before marriage or during marriage. It's a, it's a large term. It, it can encompass premarital sex, and it can encompass um, adultery and homosexuality and the like. So it is a rather broad term, except for porneia, marital unfaithfulness, listen to this, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I realize that in our day, this has become extremely unpopular. The truth is that we are wanting divorce, American style, 
We are wanting to, to divorce for any and every reason. And when we look at this, truly, it is hard. We're looking for ways in which we can part company from our spouse. We say, say this is too hard. We say, it's not my fault, so I'm walking away. I need to protect myself. I need to be happy for once. I'm tired of apologizing when I'm so little at fault. I want to challenge this thinking. Jesus wants to close this door that we are constantly wanting to open. He narrows it down and he says, marital unfaithfulness, that's it. Now, some have suggested, well, he is speaking to two groups here. One group is those who are not married but betrothed, and the other are married. And in each case, at least in Jewish culture, the woman was called his wife. Mary, before she was married, was called the wife of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So some would say that this group he's speaking to specifically right here is the betrothed group that apparently you would have to give her a certificate of divorce, and you could only divorce her if she was unfaithful. Now, the problem that we have with this is, what happens if there's a different reason? What happens if he just stops finding interest in her, even though he's betrothed, breaks the betrothment, and marries a different woman? Jesus says, you are causing her then to commit what? Adultery, hang on, adultery is not committed by someone who's unmarried, it is committed only by someone who is married. So I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is speaking to married couples here, not simply the betrothed, and he is saying there is only one reason, and he gets at the heart of this. He gets at this concept of one flesh, and if you were to look up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are made one flesh by having sex within the conf- in any confines. We are making ourselves one with that person. Paul says, why are you having sex with prostitutes? Do you not realize that you are becoming one flesh with them? Now, there is another element. That's physically one flesh. Spiritually, God is the one. That happens at marriage. So for this reason, in the Jewish culture, consummation of the marriage is is important. Regardless, Jesus is saying, guys, when you are getting married, you are becoming one flesh. That is to be viewed, yes, in the sexual intercourse way that you are becoming one flesh. But at that exchange of vows, I, God, is making you one flesh as well. There's a spiritual flesh, one flesh. There is a physical one flesh. I'm making you one. God is a part of this. Man is a part of this. And he is saying, yes, marital unfaithfulness erodes and eats away at this one flesh. However, he says, apart from that, I give no allowance. And I do know of many people, their spouses have been unfaithful, and yet they have chosen to remain with them and forgive them, and they remain married. I commend that. Jesus does give an allowance. But the truth is, church, in our culture, we look for any and every reason to be able to divorce our spouses. And God says, do not 
do this. Apart from marital unfaithfulness, do not divorce. God truly hates divorce. And he says it this way. When you are married, you have become one flesh. And this is God ordained. And he concludes with this. What God has brought together as one, don't you separate. And yet here we find in America, the divorce rate in the church has risen to equal the divorce rate in the world. We have taken the word of God and we have said, what a nice suggestion. I want right now to challenge this mentality that's so prevalent in America today that is so in favor of divorce for any and every reason And I'm going to add, it is because of the hardness of our hearts. But today, God gives no permission, like he did in the Old Testament. No, if you do, you are, and you marry, apart from marital unfaithfulness, you are committing adultery. God has made you one. I'm going to challenge you then. Apart from this exception, pursue your spouse. Don't allow the lies of the enemy to get in there to disrupt this relationship. See your relationship. If you are married today, see your relationship as you becoming one flesh by God. And it is true that many are saved and their spouse divorces them and it is not for marital unfaithfulness and they divorce And maybe they never get remarried. I'm going to encourage you, see yourself still married to that person. God is the one who made you one. So here's my question. You're in a situation, and in your marriage, you have contemplated divorce. In your marriage, and I would venture to say that practically everyone has contemplated divorce. They have thought about it. The expectations they had moving into marriage were crushed sometime during or after the honeymoon. And this Prince Charming is not as charming as you thought he was. And this lovely woman, you were wondering, who is this that you woke up to next and, and woke up next to? And where are these arguments coming from? And I have been there. And in the early part of my marriage with my wife, we went through some hard times. And so I'm just going to share just a few things. So where do we go from here? How do I fireproof my marriage, if you will? How do I keep my marriage together? How do I keep this relationship going? You've heard the line in Jurassic Park, life finds a way, right? I want to tell you today, love finds a way. Okay, can you hear that? Love finds a way. Jesus is not just simply, he's not just trying to close this door on divorce and say, well, just suck it up and live with it. There are truths, there are things that we can do so that we can remain married and so that we take divorce off the table. It is not to be a discussion. And the reason why this is so important, church, is because most people in America today either grew up in a home 
in which their parents were divorced or they themselves got a divorce. It touches the majority of people in America. How does love find a way? I'm just going to take the last remaining minutes. I want to talk to you just very frankly. How do we do this? Number one, and I'm going to repeat what I said last week, be the first to forgive or ask for forgiveness. Be the first to ask for forgiveness. When, if they come and apologize to you, don't make them grovel. Don't make, them, don't make it hard for them to come to you. If they apologize, forgive them. Don't hold it over their heads. Don't give them the silent treatment. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Seek to be the first one to ask for forgiveness. Here's a reality check. Most arguments in a marriage eventually find both at fault. Not always, but usually. Maybe it is an offense that's given and the other responds out of anger, says things that they don't, and now you've both got to apologize to each other. Listen. Everything that I'm going to be telling you, and there's so many different things. There's books on this subject, obviously. I want to give you just a few. But it all comes down to this. Listen. Don't put your fingers in your ears. Listen. Try to see life, the hurt, from their perspective. Why are they offended? Ask them questions. If you don't understand, just let them know. Try to set aside the anger. Be slow to anger. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Ask a question. Let them share. Jesus understands the importance of this. When he was asked that testing question, how did he respond? With a question. I'm not saying that you should do that. You should ask questions every time they ask a question, but I'm saying questions are important. Questions help them articulate what's going on in here and in here in their heart, in their mind. Draw them out. Don't be afraid to do this. But what that's going to do is that's going to force you to listen. If you're going to ask questions, it's going to force you to have to be able to say, am I understanding what there's, am I climbing into their shoes so that I can understand their hurt? Listen to their heart, not just their words. Listen to their heart. Find out why they are hurt. I tell you what, I have been amazed so many times and just kind of doing one of these, wow, I would have never known. And I would ask my wife, trying to understand her, her hurt, I just would not have been hurt in that situation. But you know what? I realized as I talked with other ladies, wow, they would have been hurt too. And I just realized there are times in which I do and say things that are just really foolish. And I have, I've had to learn to understand my wife's perspective. She is vastly different than me. She is wired differently, differently than me. Things hurt her that don't hurt me. And you know what? Things probably hurt me that don't hurt Climb into their shoes. Listen. Forgive. Seek reconciliation. Apologize quickly. Number two, I'm just going to encourage you to do this. Spend Every single one of you, spend time with God regularly. Because when you're spending time with God regularly, you are giving God your ear 
and you are trying to listen, God, speak to me and regularly show me how I can follow you. Fill me up with your spirit. Incline my ear to your heart, God. When you do this, you will be open to the Holy Spirit leading you, speaking to you, even whispering, you know what? You really shouldn't listen to your wife. You really should have listened to your husband. And I'm going to tell you this. If your heart is open to hearing from the Spirit, your spouse will stop playing the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay? Your spouse... Guilty as charged. You, there is our tendency to, con- if, if I see something wrong, to have to point it out to my spouse. And you know what? If they're spending time in the word, we're going to realize, you know what? I don't have to do that so much because I know that they're hearing from God. And I can trust the Holy Spirit to be speaking these things. And I don't have to be so critical and negative. And the third thing I want to challenge you with is you need to have friends in your life. Friends that can see your backside and love you so much that they can point it out. Because if it is only your spouse who is doing this in your life, and we all wrestle with blind spots, church, every single one of us, including your pastor, and to this day, I still have blind spots. I don't want to. I'm 58 years old, 58 and a half, and I should be knowing more than what I do, and yet I still have blind spots. I'm going to venture to say we all have them. We all have them. And we, if you are constantly having to speak to your spouse's blind spots, it's going to create so much friction. So if you have friends that can do this, that means less work for your spouse. Is that not simple? But many of us, we become isolated. Many of us, it is me and Jesus and no more. But the more you build friendships with people, true friendships love you regardless of how many mistakes you make, how often you offend them. They still love you, but they're willing to help you see that. So your wife, is, your spouse is not the only one doing that. So I'm going to encourage you, have friends that can speak into your life. So you're, you're getting truth from God. You're getting truth from your friends. That was number three. Number four. Uh, the goal of this is that God is going to be building character in your life. Can I just say that when we lack character, it will erode in every relationship that we have, not just our marriage. It will re- erode in our relationship with our children, our spouse, our friends. But if you are humble and you are teachable, the Spirit of God can speak to your heart. If your heart is pliable, the Spirit of God can shape it and mold it. When you're on that wheel, that potter's wheel, and you stop saying to the potter who is God himself, why are you making me this way? And that's actually a quote from Isaiah. God doesn't have to argue his way to get his way. And our hearts are pliable. We allow him to work in us. But we've got to be spending time with him. We've got to be allowing the truth to be spoken into our hearts through those who are closest to us, forming character, chipping away at those rough edges. And if you don't believe that you have rough edges, that only convinces me all the more how many rough edges you have. That's just the truth. We all have them. We all have them. Let God 
Let others, let his word, allow God to refine us and mold us. Building character, constantly shaping. In order for this to happen, I'm going to say it again, you've got to be listening. You've got to be listening. You've got to be listening to God. You've got to be listening to others. You have to be listening to your spouse. You can't argue your way all the time. I've heard it said, it is more important, your relationship is more important than being right. Or as John Maxwell says, relationship over being right. We're always wanting to prove that we're right, aren't we? That's a defensive nature. I'm guilty of this. I am guilty. And God says, you know what, Mike? If you just had more humility, you'd be able to listen and you would seek to make that relationship right rather than making being right your goal. And then lastly, I'm just going to conclude with this. So much more we could talk about here. But sacrifice, serving, putting their needs above your own. And there's only one way that you can sacrifice. Just remember, Jesus said that he is the example of love and he laid down his life for us. Even so, we should lay down our lives for one another. Husbands, lay your lives down for your wives. Wives, lay your lives down for your husbands. To do this, though, we have to listen to their needs. And I have to confess, there, some of you are so good at this. It's like you just constantly focus on needs. My wife is, is so excellent in this area. She's always listening for the needs of others. She's always listening for my needs. Mike Jeffords is an interesting young man. He, he has a mind like a trap when it comes to people's needs, and he tends to focus and, and serve people in this way. There are times in which six months before my birthday, I mentioned something, and guess what I got on my birthday? He remembered it for six months, and I just realized he really excels in this. I'm going to encourage you, church, excel in listening to the needs of those around you, especially your spouse. Listen to their needs. It is so easy, though, that we begin to focus on what my needs are. You have needs. You do. Some of us spouses are not really good at meeting one another's needs. And if you come into your marriage with the expectation that your spouse is going to meet all of your needs you are going to have one miserable marriage. You need friends. You need others that are going to be able to speak into your life and others that are going to minister to you as a friend and not just your spouse. But I tell you what, in this whole concept of laying down our lives for one another, for our spouse, it is so easy to be so focused and not see our spouse's needs that we would be willing to sacrifice, to surrender. I've, I've heard it said that there are two types of people. There are those who are givers and those who are takers. And I'm going to encourage you to be a giver. If you are a taker, if you're constantly looking to have your needs met and you enter into a marriage, that attitude will erode and eat away at your marriage. And God wants to build more Christ-like character into your life so that that mentality of being a taker changes and you learn to be a giver.
focusing on their needs and asking God, how can I lay down my life for my wife, for my husband? But don't make this mistake. Careful. I have come 50% of the way, and so I need you to come the rest of the 50%. This is how we think in relationships many times. That mentality, though, destroys marriages. Because the other person doesn't view you going 50%. They won't. You think you are, but they will not. Have this mindset. Being a giver means that you go 100%. You go the full way. Jesus said it this way, give and expect nothing in return. That's right. If we're able to do this in our relationships, especially in our marriages, if you give and just expect nothing in return, guess what happens when you don't get anything in return? You're not crushed. Your, your expectations are not dashed. But you know what? Your spouse, it's amazing. Your spouse will respond many times so very positively. When you give and they see that, I mean, how many times have you ever, for example, received a gift, unexpected gift from someone on your birthday or Christmas or just out of the blue? And you just thought, you, wow, it, it touched you, didn't it? Isn't there something inside of you that begins immediately to think, how can I? I now demonstrate kindness to them. That's how we're wired. When we are loved, there's something in us that wants to love back. That's actually what 1 John 4 talks about. We love only because he first loved us. That it, We are wired to think this way, church. So here's why I'm suggesting. Stop focusing on on how much your spouse can give to you. Don't have a 50% mentality. Have a 100% mentality. Go the whole way. Go to them. Serve, serve, serve. Ask God. Write down. Be creative. How can I meet their needs? How can I have this servant's mentality? How can I serve? How can I sacrifice for my spouse today? What time can I give? What words can I say? How, how can I make my spouse this priority that he or she needs to be. Go the 100%. And when you do that, you, I promise you, you will be amazed at how frequently your spouse will respond. But if you just go 50%, they will not see that. They'll see it more like 20%. And they're going to feel robbed. So go the whole 100. Go the whole length of the football field, church. The bottom line is this. Jesus says, we are in this relationship, in marriages, for good, okay? So instead of us being hurt, retreating, and eventually walking out the door of divorce, God wants us to build lasting relationships. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with everyone including your spouse. Now, I don't expect to know every single one of your situations. And some of us are in really hard ones. If it's not in our marriage, it's with someone else, maybe a child, a relative, a neighbor, another Christian or brother, sister in this body of Christ right now. 
and we feel like giving up. Do you realize that God calls us, not just as married couples, to be united, but as the body of Christ to be united? Don't give up on one another. Don't do that. In God's eyes, we are too valuable in his sight. Jesus came so that we would be completely unified, not hating one another, but forgiven, being patient and forbearing with one another, not just in our marriages, but in the body of Christ. So I charge you, church, this is important. Be reconciled. Amen? Can you stand with me? I want to ask you, and many of us are going to fit into this category. Is there someone you need to be reconciled to? Are you listening? Are you hearing them and doing what you can, wrestling in prayer? What's my next step, God? How can I humble myself some more? How can I serve? How can I give? How can I rescue this relationship? And if it's your spouse, Take it up a few notches. What God has called together, don't you separate. So, Father, please, this is really important, God. We live in a day in which relationships are disposable, tossed out like used Kleenexes, God. We just throw them away. We get hurt, we're done. This is not your heart, Lord. And right now, I just ask, Father, would you give us your heart? We're in this for the long haul. Give us salt. And as far as it depends on us to live at peace with everyone. Please, God, may we listen. May we see things from your perspective and others. And I ask you, Father, that you, by your spirit, would empower us to be peacemakers reconcilers. Fill us with your love. Where the enemy's been storing up hurt, remove that God. Wash it away and fill us with your love. Supernatural. Please, God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.